This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the historian Edward Acorn about his new book, Every Drop of Blood, the momentous second inauguration of Abraham Lincoln. Your book, Ed, is as fine a work of the historical imagination as it has ever been my good fortune to read. The setting for all but three of your 15 chapters is the city of Washington on Saturday, March 4th, 1865, the day on which President Abraham Lincoln delivers his second inaugural address. Onto that stage, you bring persons of influence. Among them, Walt Whitman, John Wilkes Booth, and Frederick Douglass, who embody the fierce passions that have driven the country into four years of bloody civil war. Before we get to the events of the day, maybe you can begin with a description of the city of Washington in the Valley of the Shadow of Death. Uh, thank you, Lewis. First of all, it's a great honor to be here. I'm a tremendous fan of your work, and I really appreciate this. Um, the thing about uh, Washington is, is it was the sleepy southern city that had been totally transformed by this war nobody expected. It was like uh, filled to the bursting point, and it was not up to the task of hosting a massive centralized government. So uh, people like uh, George Templeton Strong, who was a New York lawyer, who came to Washington and said, of all the detestable places, Washington is first. Crowds, heat, bad quarters, bad fare, bad smells, mosquitoes, and a plague of flies transcending everything in my experience. Beelzebub surely reigns here, and Willard's Hotel is his temple. You had uh, foul-smelling animal pens all over the city, the streets were full of rooting hogs, dirt, decaying horse manure, uh, rotting animal carcasses, and you had sort of dilapidated and half-finished structures next to these uh, beautiful new mansions and houses and so forth. So it was a very uh, strange place. Um, I always love this quote from a Michigan soldier who was visiting the capital in November 1861 and found it was dominated by three large groups of people. The first was soldiers. The other two, he wrote in his diary, were politicians and prostitutes, both very numerous and about equal in numbers, honesty, and morality. <laughs> and that's, that's probably the truth now as well. But it was it was a you know it was famous for its dirty streets and and uh, when it was dry, those streets were all dusty and making it almost impossible with the dust blowing in everyone's faces. And when it was uh, rainy, as it was on uh, the morning of March fourth when Lincoln was uh, inaugurated for the second time, it was uh, just filled with deep mud. I mean, it was all, it, women were were having their dresses destroyed trying to walk around, and it was a a real mess. And uh, what I try to do with writing history is take it down from the usual omniscient view, 30,000 feet up in the sky, and, and bring it down to the level where you're actually on the ground and you're with these human beings who are human. They couldn't 
see ahead. They didn't know what was going to happen next. Uh, they were just clueless about what was going to happen next. And I think that makes the events of this day especially poignant. Um, and that's what I tried to do. Well, you've done it brilliantly. And, and the the city itself, it's on March 4th, the, the stench of the animal carcasses and in the canal which, oh yes, you know, in- <laughs> there was a there was a, a canal that had been constructed in hopes of you know getting connecting the city sort of to the rivers in the west and so forth, and it was a total disaster. By this time, it was just filled with the sewage coming out of the hotels and everything else in in Washington, and it was it created a great stench that you could smell up at the White House. Uh, on bad days and you know flies uh, mosquitoes is just a disaster and this is what the capital was like at the time it's also shrouded in the presence of death i mean yes. 750,000 young men have been killed by march 4th lincoln's assassination is only 6 weeks away the, the yes. city is filled with with the wounded their soldiers their the hospitals are stinking whitman is working in a hospital tell us uh, as we work toward the this speech on yeah, noon at noon on on saturday the 4th but who, who who's in town i mean where in your tableau is, say, Whitman or Frederick Douglass or Andrew Johnson or yes, Salmon Chase. Yeah, when I when I zeroed in on this one day in Lincoln's life, um, I was fascinated to see all these different famous people emerge, sort of interwoven through that day, like a tapestry almost. And you had Walt Whitman, who was the great uh, poet and uh, author of Leaves of Grass, who was covering this um, for the uh, New York Times, uh, which is a kind of a kick. You get to read his his dispatches to the New York Times about the events of this day. And he, as you mentioned, he had come to Washington and devoted himself to going to the hospitals and uh, trying to ease the uh, loneliness and the pain of these young men in the hospitals and get them some help uh, from the nurses and so forth and read to them and write letters to their families. He was very, very, very struck by the suffering of that war. And I tried to bring that out in the book. Uh, other people that day, Frederick Douglass, who was the great black leader at the time, uh, uh, he 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 was there in the city. Um, he was not allowed into the Capitol. They would not allow Black Americans into the Capitol for the uh, for those ceremonies, which is quite striking when you think of it. Uh, here, here, Black soldiers were fighting. One hundred eighty thousand Black Americans were fighting for the Union cause, and they wouldn't let them into the Capitol. So he stood out in the mud, uh, out in the front of, uh, of Lincoln, listening to him deliver that speech. And later that evening, he, he stood in line with thousands of people trying to shake Lincoln's hand at the White House. And he was thrown out uh, more than once of the White House, but he persisted and got in. 
And Lincoln said, oh, here's my great friend, uh, Doug- Douglas. He was thrilled to see him, and he asked him what he thought of the speech. Lincoln had met Douglas before. Yes, he right? had. He had met yeah. him two, two times at the White House. Um, the first time Douglas had come to the White House to uh, complain that black soldiers were being paid less than white soldiers, which was something uh, Lincoln had approved. And they had a discussion about that, and Lincoln uh, Lincoln spoke about, we have to make this concession right now to prejudice, but in time, blacks will be paid the same as whites. And uh, it's very interesting that uh, Douglas did not know what to expect when he met Lincoln. He thought, he, he didn't have a high, part of the book, one of the themes of the book is Douglas's evolving opinion of Lincoln. He thought he was this hack politician who wasn't particularly interested in slavery, despite what he said. And he took forever to do the Emancipation Proclamation in Douglas's view, and he was too sluggish and slow. Douglas had hoped he would not uh, be nominated and, and reelected as president. He, he favored another candidate who was Salmon P. Chase, the, tr- the Treasury Secretary. And uh, D- Douglas came gradually to realize that Lincoln really was the strongest advocate for black Americans. And it's quite poignant to see his transformation and his understanding of Lincoln. He, he understood, he came to understand that Lincoln had to act within a political uh, climate. And he was, he was actually taking steps that would make sure these changes were permanent. So that's one of the themes of the book, and I, I think and, he was – go ahead, Lewis. And another theme of the book is Lincoln's own evolving attitude towards slavery. That's I mean, well, I mean his attitude at the beginning in 1861, the first inaugural address, is, is one thing. And it changes and evolves over the course of the, the war. Right. Well, Lincoln, Lincoln consistently detested slavery, and he, but at the start of the war, he believed you could not uh, remove slavery. It was protected by the Constitution. And he was trying to fight the war to restore the Union. And he did not initially see the destruction of uh, slavery as essential to that. As this horrible war continued and more and more people got slaughtered, he came to realize the only way to win that war was to destroy slavery and, in fact, to arm uh, former slaves and have them fight against the South, join in this effort to defeat slavery. And by the time of his second inauguration, he was making a statement that no president had ever made, that slavery was profoundly evil and that we had fought this terrible war, uh, this was God's judgment on America for the evil of slavery, and that we had to go through this war to get rid of it. And Doug, Douglas and every, I mean, everybody was profoundly moved by that statement. Not everybody. His Lincoln's detractors were outraged by that statement, and I write about that in the book. We're going to get a little further on. We'll get, we're going to get to the meeting of Douglas with Lincoln after he makes the speech. But yes. before that, um, 
where is John Wilkes Booth on, oh, on, on this day? Yes, Booth is uh, a fascinating figure. He was stalking Lincoln on this day, which is not well known, I don't think. He um, he, he was uh, he's. He he was a uh, uh, very uh, he was a white supremacist. He became increasingly uh, manic about politics and really obsessed with this idea that Lincoln was destroying the Constitution and the country that the founders had created. And this was a view shared by some many Southerners, but but Booth was just obsessed, and he managed, I think, through, he was dating a, uh, the daughter of, of all things, of a, uh, a New Hampshire senator who was an abolitionist. And he, he was engaged to this daughter, and she managed to get him a pass, I believe, to come into the Capitol. And once he was in there, he snuck in behind Lincoln when Lincoln was walking out on the platform to deliver his uh, great address. And somebody managed to stop Booth and uh, turn him aside. And uh, to me, that's that's part of the, the incredible thing about this day, because six weeks later, as you mentioned, Booth snuck up on him at, at the Ford's Theater and shot him in the head. And uh, he could well have done that this day. What, what, was he armed? Do we know? Was he carrying a weapon? We don't know. We don't know. They just, believe it or not, there was such limited security. This uh, this fellow, Benjamin Brown French, saw him there and turned, stopped him, and, he, and Booth was outraged, saying, I have every right to be here. And they just turned him aside, and he walked off in a huff. But they didn't, they didn't stop him. They didn't search him. They didn't arrest him. And he, uh, they, French thought he might be a, a new incoming congressman. He didn't know, and he, he didn't want to uh, rattle him, uh, create a political problem for himself. So he just let him go. And this was the world we, uh, they lived in. But but Booth later told a friend, I I had a opportunity to kill Lincoln that day. And uh, the friend said, well, what good would that have done? And Booth said, I could live in history. And that was how he was thinking at that point. All right. And so now let's get to the the morning of the 4th. Before Lincoln comes out onto the portico to speak, Andrew Johnson, who's his vice president, <laughs> has, has gives, gives a speech inside the Capitol. Is that right? That's right. Johnson uh, didn't want to be there. Lincoln had to order him to come to the inauguration. He wasn't feeling that well. He had been uh, at a party the night before. He showed up that morning and to settle his nerves, supposedly drank a couple large glasses of whiskey. And he became quite inebriated and uh, engaged in this maudlin speech uh, in the in the Senate when he was uh, when he was inaugurated and uh, the the cabinet was sitting there totally embarrassed. Lincoln showed up part way into the speech because he had gone on so long, uh, and he just sat there uh, 
just mortified, I'm sure. Well, I mean, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, Johnson was drunk. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And he, and he was, uh, they didn't know, you know, Seward said, well, maybe, Seward, uh, who was the uh, Secretary of State, William Seward said, well, maybe he's just not feeling well or something like that. But uh, people thought, oh, my God, he was drunk. And, of course, the Democratic press had a field day with this. And people outside that inauguration said, oh, my God, we have to hope nothing happens to Lincoln because this guy would be president. And it was uh, quite quite ironic to hear this. All right. Now, now, okay. Now, Lincoln comes outside at about noon. And when did he write the speech? It's, it's not clear, but Lincoln had a, you know, he, he took like years really to write that speech because what he would do was, uh, think things through, uh, write letters where these thoughts sort of emerged and, or write little notes to himself, sometimes putting them in his, in his hat to save his stovepipe hat. And then he would gather these pieces together and very slowly work on a speech. He did not like to give speeches. He, he, uh, he was very meticulous about what he said. It would take him a long time, and he would read it out loud to himself uh, because he felt like the sound was so important. It wasn't just the words. It was the sound, the impact of what he was saying. So it, I, th- I think it took him – this speech was the process of years of thinking. You know, the war had gone on. He, he, he was asking himself, how can a just war – go on this long, how can so much human suffering happen? All I'm trying to do is restore the union. All I'm trying to do is create a country where we respect who gets elected instead of breaking in half. If somebody is elected, you don't like. And uh, he, and what we're doing is trying to elevate the black people. How can this war go on and on? So he he felt he had to grapple with that question. How could a just God permit this kind of suffering to go on? And this was his answer, that this had to happen to get rid of slavery. There was no other way to atone for this sin than through this horrific war. It's a, it's a magnificent speech. I mean, there, there are a crowd of 30,000 people standing around the the, the, new, the newly constructed capital i mean it as he, when he begins the speech it's already a dark stormy day and it's still still raining a little bit uh, as he comes to the end of it the sun comes out uh, right the, as he came to the podium the sun broke out and people thought oh wow this is an omen this is uh america finally has a brighter future. Nobody know, knew he was going to be killed six weeks later. But the sun did come out and it gave his, he said, my heart skipped because I saw that. And then he entered into this wonderful speech, only 700 words long, which is about five or six minutes. You can't imagine a modern politician doing that. And it's so dense with uh, beautiful language drawn from the the Bible, 
Have you have you have you got a little bit of it in front of you? I'd I, like you I to do. read. I'd like you to read the the last two paragraphs, beginning fondly. Do we hope? Okay, I'd love to do that. Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so it, still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow, and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and a lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. And then, if you can remember it, say what, when Douglas finally, at the reception afterwards, <laughs> and, and yes. Douglas, the reception is in the White House, right? That's this right. Late, later in the afternoon. Thousands of people lined up. Yeah. I can read it to you. Well, go ahead. I mean, this is the way you report it. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's a long line. Lincoln is shaking hands with hundreds of people. And after Douglas has finally managed to get in, he gets in the line and he says, Mr. Lincoln, I must not detain you with my poor opinion when there are thousands waiting to shake hands with you. And Lincoln says, Lincoln says, no, no, I, I want to know what you think of it. And Douglas says, Mr. Lincoln, that was a sacred effort. And Lincoln says, I'm glad you liked it. How, Isn't that wonderful? It, that's just magnificent. And, and, but what was the reaction in the press? I mean, the press didn't get it. I mean, I mean, what, what Horace Greeley got it completely wrong. <laughs> Well, many in the yeah, Greeley was a real. Uh, he was a he was a Republican, but he was sort of a cantankerous figure who didn't really get it. Um, but uh, many of the Democrat media, uh, the the uh, the newspapers of the time, just said it was terrible. You know, here's this guy who's led us into this bloody war talking about malice toward none. And uh, they, they found it deeply offensive that a politician would be talking about God and God's will uh, as if, you know, a politician knew anything about that. So they was, there was a, this was the, by far the most religious uh, inaugural address any president had ever given. And there was a great deal of uh, contempt for it. In addition, for his use of language, many people thought it was uh, not not fitting for. It's it's hard to believe this stuff now when you you look at the beautiful language of this, and you know there it is engraved on the wall of the Lincoln Memorial. It's just considered American scripture. Some of the most uh, 
profound and beautiful language ever written about our country. And at the time, the press was very divided on it. Even the Republican press didn't understand it, really. They, they didn't grasp the message he was really trying to get through. And Lincoln said uh, something to the, I wish I had the exact quote in front of me, but he said, um, it's not going to be immediately popular, right. but I think it's going to have more lasting impact than uh, almost anything I've written. And I thought that was right. It, it does. And, and uh, given our current circumstance in the shadow of death, you know, with the corner of virus deaths in the United States at the moment and the same and, and the protests, uh, racial injustice that are flooding through the streets. I mean, it, it, if there was any book to read to explain and try to understand what's going on now, it would be this book. I oh, think. thank you, Lewis. Thank you, Lewis. Well, thank you. Thank you, Edward Acorn, for speaking with us today about your new book, Every Drop of Blood. It's a marvelous book, and I appreciate the chance to talk with you. It was a, it was a great honor. Thank you, Lewis. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.